So, hey guys, we are back with another exciting podcast, and you guys are going to love this one. And and my my brain is going to try to absorb everything I can in the next 55 minutes. And today we're podcast is with uh, Casey Tiefertiller. He wrote the amazing book, Wyatt Earp, The Life Behind the Legend. Um, I'm more than blessed and happy that he said yes to doing the podcast because uh, his book was groundbreaking in Wyatt Earp history and research and, and the things he found and the things he dug up and, and some of the myths and um, history that he rewrote by finding truly true history through you know true provenance and it was firsthand research and it, it, it totally changed the way we look at Wyatt Earp today. But of course, before we do the podcast, I want to remind everybody about the Tombstone Epitaph. And my friend Mark Boardman, uh, he is the editor at the Tombstone Epitaph. And that is an awesome newspaper. People want to feel history, right? You want to be a part of Tombstone history. You want to be a part of Old West history. And sometimes the best way to do that is with a newspaper. And this is a truly published newspaper. It's not digital, so you get to hold it, you get to read it, you get to save it, and go back and use it as reference. Now, the memberships are super reasonable. It's 25 bucks for one year. 45 bucks for two or $60 for three. And if you do the $60 for three, I think you save $15 overall. That's a huge savings. So you might as well just get the $60. You don't have to worry about it. And you'll be a part of Tombstone and Western history by becoming a subscriber to the Tombstone Epitaph. And you can find all you need to know about the Tombstone Epitaph at Tombstone Epitaph. That's E-I-P-T-A-P-H dot com. TombstoneEpitaph.com. Of course, I always want to take and give a huge shout out to the folks at the Wild West History Association. Now, um, Casey is a member. We talked about it earlier. And if you want to find out about memberships, you can do so by going to WildWestHistory.org. The new journal, which is over a quarter inch thick, 105 plus pages long. It's crazy how much history is in here. Now, you're not going to get you know, ads for, um, you know, oil valet, you're not going to get car ads, you're not going to get, you know, TV show ads, you're not going to get all that stuff. It is just truly packed with Western history. And the memberships are 75 for one year, uh, 125 for two, or 175 for three. I think if you do this 175 for three, it's over a $20, $25 a year, or, or $25 savings for the entire subscription time of three years. And again, it, it, some people will say, Mike, it's pricey. It, it really isn't because there is so much packed into the journal and you get to actually communicate and uh, ask the, the historians direct questions when you need to. And they're all there. And that is the Wild West History Association. And you can find them at wildwesthistory.org. So I, I reached out to Casey through an email, and surprisingly he answered, and I didn't expect him to. Um, and he has been extremely kind. We've spoken a couple of times. And uh, I'm really excited to have him here. Welcome, sir. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. So you you changed from being, you were a sports writer. You still are a sports writer. What, what happened that you in your comfortable life said, I'm going to tackle Western history's, you know, biggest name? 
Where did what happened that you said I've got to do this? Well, when I was a kid, I was always fascinated by Wyatt Earp, and I mean. Uh, I was a journalist. I, I did sports, but I also did a good deal of news and uh, other stuff during the years. And uh, so I've, I've always been very interested in Western history. My grandfather had been a working cowboy, and he later became a chief of police. And so I grew up with my grandfather. And when I was little, we'd sit and watch the reruns of the old Hugh O'Brien TV show. And we'd sit and watch, and when he'd been a cowboy, some of the old Arizona hands had drifted into California. And so he had heard stories about Wyatt Earp, that Wyatt Earp was not a hero. Wyatt Earp was a villain. And at about that time, uh, the Western magazines, which we had always had stacked up, we always had True West stacked up uh, on the tables, the Western magazines we're telling about Wyatt Earp, the bad guy, and how the Wyatt Earp uh, story was fraudulent. And yet, here we are watching Hugh O'Brien playing this great, heroic Wyatt Earp. And my grandfather was telling me the stories he'd heard in the old bunkhouses. And I just, from the time, for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the idea that one man could have two so diametrically opposed legacies where many people thought he was a hero and many people thought he was a villain. And so I've, I've read about it. I've read both sides of the issues. And um, I just always been fascinated by that concept that, you know, was Earp a hero or a villain? And nobody knew. I mean, it was a lingering question. So about the time that uh, the movies were starting to come out, Tombstone and Wyatt Earp, I wrote an article for the San Francisco Examiner Sunday Magazine, a big, long article on Earp, just putting out the question, was Wyatt Earp a hero? Was he a villain? And so I, I put out that uh, article with the uh, just asking, the, just stating both sides of the case and uh, telling what was going on. And... Much to my surprise, I got a call from New York from uh, the people who wanted to do the new Wyatt Earp movie with uh, Hugh O'Brien, where they were going to put together the old episodes of the TV show and then bring in Bruce Boxleitner to um, add to the story. And they asked me if I'd do an accompanying book, and it would just be a quickie book. And then came the real surprise. I started doing research for the quickie book, and I started in the morgue of the examiner, the library of the examiner, and all of a sudden I started finding all this information that nobody had ever known before on Wyatt Earp that helped clarify the story. And, I mean, it was just one of the most stunning things you can imagine that in just a few nights I started pulling out information that just really clarified the story from old newspapers that nobody had checked. And shortly after that, I started expanding it, and I went to the Bancroft Library in Berkeley, and I found previously unknown reels of the Tombstone Papers, and I just was amazed that in not a very long time, I had found stuff that nobody had known. And I mean, imagine sitting in the library 
and you start finding these articles nobody had seen, nobody knew about. And so I did that, and eventually the quickie book didn't sell, and things fell apart there. And I made the decision, you know, you're a journalist. All of a sudden you look around and you say, oh my God, I've got the scoop of a lifetime. And I had the story that nobody else had ever had. And it started coming together. And I decided that instead of doing a quick book, I was going to do a major uh, journalistic biography of Earp. And I, you know, I made the acquaintance of several really important people. Jeff Morey, who is the, uh, was the historical advisor for the movie Tombstone and probably knows more about the subject than any person alive. I mean, he's just, he is um, an amazing resource. Gary Roberts, who's a professor in Georgia who has been studying Western history his whole life. Uh, Carl Chafin, uh, Jack Burroughs, and, and Jack Burroughs is just an incredible person. And uh, many others who were of great help in putting this together. And I just was really fortunate in locating so much material that it was just shocking, to be completely honest. But I want to ask you back a little bit, not far back, just a quick question. You were uncovering stuff, like you said, that had not been seen before, but was readily available because you found it. Why do you think it is that stuff that was so game-changing to Wyatt Earp was not found previously? Or was it that that we're comfortable in what we're believing and we don't really want to look any further? Well, that's probably a harder question than it sounds. First of all, when I was getting started, I was told by several people that it would be impossible to write a biography of Wyatt Earp uh, and that the only way it could be done would be to get the assistance of the two people, one at least one of the two people who were then considered the great curators of Wyatt Earp information. And one was uh, John Gilcrease in Tucson, who had been under contract to write a Wyatt Earp book for many years. Knopf gave him an awful lot of money to write a Wyatt Earp book, and he couldn't do it. Um, and the other was Glenn Boyer, who had written uh, the supposed memoirs of Josephine Earp, which turned out to be fraudulent. But um, uh, most people didn't believe it was possible. I And a whole lot of people had tried to write a biography. I mean, lots and lots of people had gone on. And a lot of the stuff wasn't readily available, really. I mean, there were... The back files of the examiner, I had special access to the examiner library because I worked there. And, I mean, people couldn't just walk in off the streets and say, can I go through your files? Um, You could write and get special permission or something, but I was able to go down and actually go through the files. And I could use the clip files. I could use all the other files. And so I did have special access to material that was not available to others. And... Because of that, I was able to locate and then, you know, as a journalist, you learn how to do methodical investigations. And I was able to kind of pick out 
periods where I'd go through the, and, and there was a lot of work. I mean, this was before newspapers.com. Uh, almost all this stuff is now on newspapers.com. And I would go down and actually spend, I'd, I'd work all night because uh, the library would be busy during the day, so the librarians would let me in at night. And I'd go down and I'd work all night going through years and years of examiner and uh, the examiner also had other newspapers there were the uh, the rack the original copies i was going through original copies of other newspapers and microfilm copies so uh, doing this i mean it wasn't like you just go down and on an index it was going through and reading you know i, I was working eight hours a night going through uh uh, old newspapers. I mean, my, I almost felt like my eyes would be bleeding at the end of it. And it was an enormous amount of work going through old newspapers, old files, old documents. Um, but it was also, it was so interesting. I mean, it was, the problem was I'd keep getting distracted by finding things that were not relevant to Tombstone, but were relevant to other interests I have. But it, it, it was a it was an enormous amount of work, and I don't think anybody had ever. I don't think any of the other researchers had ever considered the fact that there were newspapers in different parts of the country, but particularly San Francisco, that viewed Tombstone as almost a suburb because Tombstone, the Tombstone mining interests, were so important to business in San Francisco that. Um, they had um, um, that, that they really kept on top of the news and ran special stories from Tombstone. They'd hire uh, reporters down there to do special stories and things like that. And I don't think anybody ever realized that the San Francisco papers were doing so much coverage of Tombstone. Well, there was so, so much nobody money. There. there was so much money flowing from the Bay Area into Arizona. Like it That's just, right. It and there was investments. <clears throat> And people had to keep a track of their holdings, keep a track of the mine, keep track of where the money is going? Absolutely. But so, I don't think anybody had ever been willing to spend a zillion hours going through San Francisco newspapers to try and find it. And after I finished with the, the examiner, I went through the files of, I think there were nine daily San Francisco newspapers at that point, and I went through the files of all the newspapers and it was just stunning how much information there was on Tombstone in there. Did you only do your research through the Bay Area, through San Francisco, or did the San Francisco portion of it open up doors to other areas or lead you into directions where I've got to go to, you know, I've got to go to Bisbee and look at the Cochise files, and I've got to go to, you know, Birthplace, and I've got to go to you know, Texas, and I've got to, did it open up those doors too? You're like, oh my God, I'm on the road. I went all over the place. I was on the road <laughs> constantly. And uh, most of it was Arizona and different places in Arizona. The Arizona uh, State Library in, in Phoenix was fabulous because they've got, and the people there were so nice and so helpful. And uh, I spent a lot of time there because they have newspaper files for around the state. I went to the the two different historical societies in Tucson and spent a lot of time there. Um, and what I do, 
this is actually kind of funny. There was a point where I hooked up with Angus Cameron, and I should mention who Angus Cameron is. Angus Cameron was a longtime editor in uh, New York, one of the most famous uh, literary editors in history. He uh, edited, uh, oh my gosh, my brain cells. He edited major books. Um, I mean, he worked with um, uh, some of the best-known authors in the country, but one of the things that he always wanted was a Wyatt Earp biography, a real Wyatt Earp biography. And it was like it was like his white whale that he wanted to uh, have a, a real Wyatt Earp biography somewhere. And so Angus was an incredible help, and he he was absolutely brilliant. And so I'd be working on stuff, and I get all this stuff. I I go down to Arizona and I copy just stacks and stacks of newspapers and documents and everything I could find, court records. And I come back and I put it all together and I get it going and get it get it together and it would just lead to more questions and then I'd run some of it past Angus. And Angus would just ask the best questions and then I'd have to make another trip to Arizona to try and find the answers to those questions and, you know, go through the old law books and stuff like that. It was just, um, it was, there was a lot of work that went into it. I mean, it was, it was a full-time job for two years of putting together the research and uh, thinking about it. I, I spoke to Nick Cataldo. I don't know if you know who Nick is. Uh, sure. I talked to Nick Cataldo. And, and David DeHaas, and they both said that they had so much information that they actually left some on the floor because they couldn't write a book so big. I would assume then you were almost the same way. Did you leave a lot of information out? Is there, is there uh, enough for another book? Or did I, you pack everything in? When I submitted my manuscript to Wiley, I had to cut a third of the book. Oh, wow. So the there book. is. So where's the third? Where's the other third? Yeah. In the attic. Oh my gosh, we got to get in the attic. We got to come down to the house and get in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> when there's a there's a lot of stuff there. So as as you were writing and you're putting in all this together and you're talking to your friend and he's coming up with more questions. The book started taking shape. How did the book go together? Because it's it's so much information, and I'm staring at it as I as I talk to you. There's so much information packed in. How did it go about? To you en- ended up coming up with a completed product. Maybe. Well, I almost don't even know how to answer that question. Um, it just. You you start working on it. I mean, I you just start working on it. You work, and then you find questions that uh, you have to. You're just compelled to answer, and you keep going. One of the questions that I thought was most interesting, and other people don't. At the time I was working on the book, one of the big questions was, uh, why did Johnny Bean? Why was Johnny Bean named sheriff of Cochise County? And there'd been all kinds kinds of uh, stories about it. Lake wrote one story. Glenn Boyer came up with 
one of the wildest stories you can imagine. And, uh, it, so none of it ever made sense. And I thought, well, this is something I'd like to resolve. And I spent an enormous amount of time researching because that I had to research in the, um, uh, state capital newspapers and the Prescott newspapers and to try and figure out why BN got the appointment instead of Wyatt Earp. And it turns out that the story, the real story is less interesting than any of the imaginary stories. BN was very well connected politically. He had friends and in a, uh, Governor Fremont had to, uh, had to have his appointments approved by the territorial legislature. So he had to include both Democrats. He had to include Democrats in order to, uh, get Republicans appointed. And Bean was one of the Democrats that he had to include. Also, as I'm sure you know, uh, Ike Clanton kind of fixed the election of 1880, so the territorial legislature at that point leaned more Democratic because of Ike Clanton's, um, Ike Clanton, because Ike Clanton fixed the election, so. Voter fraud. Yep. And, um, he wasn't the only one. I mean, he was, he was working at the direction of others, but he was the one who, he was responsible for it in some ways, and so, uh, that was the way BN got the appointment was kind of politics as usual, negotiating a deal and uh, being politically connected was how he got the appointment. And so that was one thing that I really wanted to answer. Um, and then, um, you know, you ask, how does it come together? I, I don't quite have to say it. It's almost like a magical process where it comes together and, I mean, working as a journalist, that's almost how stories come together. You sit there and you're doing an investigation of something and you say, oh my God, I've got all these loose ends. How do I tie them together? And somehow, almost beyond your own understanding, you find a way to do it. And, and after you do it a few times, you expect that you'll be able to do it. You know that you'll be able to do it. Was there, was there something in all your research and everything that you did to get the book together, including leaving the third in your attic that we want to see. Now everybody's going to be like, print that third. Um, is there something that was in the research that was so mind-blowing and game-changing to you that you can share? Like, oh my gosh, this... Like, for me, for me, a lot of it was the early years because nobody wanted to talk about Earps being uh, pimps or, you know, in their early time and why it even lied about it at some point. Was there something that, that you researched and found that was so out there that you couldn't believe it? Well, let's start with the pimps issue. Um, when I was doing my research, nobody knew about that. It wasn't until after my book came out. And this is a kind of a wild story. It was as newspapers.com and the other services were coming on, a genealogist found a strange story about Wyatt Earp being arrested uh, for working at a brothel in Peoria, Illinois. And I didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it until this researcher, this genealogist came out with it. And I think he sent it to Steve Gatto, but I'm not sure. And then Roger Jay uh, did a lot of the follow-up work on it. And 
did just you know did a fantastic job of bringing it out but we didn't i didn't know any of that nobody knew any of that until a couple several years after my book came out and it's you know it's it's a great addition to the herb story i mean it helps us understand so much more and seeing that part and you ask what was i surprised about yeah, there was a lot I was surprised about. Uh, I mean, it was just about Wyatt Earp and about the history of Wyatt Earp. I, I, uh, there was a point when the first time that I talked to Gary Roberts, again, Gary's a professor in Georgia. He's spent a lot of his time researching Doc Holliday, and he would write the Doc Holliday book. And as things were going on, Glenn Boyer had come out. I talked to Glenn Boyer on the phone several times. We got friendly. Uh, and Glenn asked if I could uh, uh, review his book for the examiner. And the policy at the examiner was that uh, you could submit a review, but they wouldn't guarantee that they'd publish it. You know, it was about 50-50, maybe a little more than that. But uh, if I... Uh, reporter submitted a review. They might publish it and they might not. And I told Glenn that and he sent me a copy of White Herb's Tombstone Vendetta, his new book. And I sat there and read it and my eyes got big because I knew there was false material in there. And I tried and tried to... One of the things was about the use of the telephone. And my dad had been a telephone man. And so my dad... Had it was well versed on the history of the telephone, and I went in and showed this stuff to my dad, and he said, "No, that's not the way it works. Telephones didn't work that way in the 1880s." And I just there there were all these things in there, all these problems in Vendetta, and uh, I called Glenn and I tried to say, "Glenn, I think somebody's given you a false manuscript," and he would have none of it. He just talked over me and. Uh, refused to listen. And it was shortly after that that I connected with Gary Roberts. And Jeff Morey had told me to connect with Gary Roberts, and we connected. And I was sitting there. I was sitting on my couch. I then lived in San Bruno, just south of San Francisco. And I was sitting on my couch, and Gary very deliberately told me that, in his opinion, not only was uh, Vendetta a fraudulent, but also, I married Wyatt Earp was fraudulent. And I said, Gary, that's just not really possible. I mean, that couldn't be the case because a university press published it. They had to go through it. And Gary and his Georgia accent, his deep Georgia, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. And as the years over the next year, it became remarkably clear that I married Wyatt Earp was partially fraudulent and that the tombstone section was not real. And it was shocking, absolutely shocking to me that uh, somebody had been able to publish a fraudulent book as to the, um, (coughs) excuse me, as to items that I found. I mean, every day it was like another surprise. I mean, the Wells Fargo statement, the Wells Fargo would come out in support of Wyatt Earp and Tombstone was just an absolutely shocking thing. I mean, it's just amazing that a company as circumspect as, as Wells Fargo would uh, 
issue a public statement of support was just amazing. And you could go on item after item. Uh, the When Wyatt and Virgil um, resigned as, as marshals, uh, uh, that had that had not appeared. That wasn't in Lake. It wasn't in any of Boyer's writings. Uh, it was in uh, uh, the book Tombstone by Burns. It wasn't in any of the Wyatt Earp books. And finding that finding such a surprising thing was just amazing. The other thing, and uh, I, I was pointed to this by a friend, but. Um, when Wyatt Earp, there was a point when Wyatt Earp actually sent a peace emissary down to talk to Ike Clanton. This is at the heart of the trouble when everything's going wild. Wyatt Earp actually sent somebody down to talk to Ike Clanton and say, let's end this. Let's stop this trouble. And, you know, no more killings, no more no more war, let's end this war. And Ike Clanton refused. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine that. I mean, that's not what we think about Wyatt Earp. That's not what we think about the whole thing. But Wyatt Earp was prepared to end the Tombstone War, and Ike Clanton refused. I mean, Mike, doesn't that shock you? It does. But, you know, it, it does and it doesn't. Because when you read the book, there was a lot of stuff that went on, and you're like, wow, like I never knew that. Um, but yeah, it's shocking. It's surprising. So you had all that information. I, I wanted to ask a little bit about his early years, Wyatt's early years. In the movie uh, Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner, they delve a little bit into Urilla and her getting, I think, a TB. Um, and the the death of their unborn child. Does does that was that a really a major turning point in Wyatt's young life? I mean, obviously using losing a wife and a child, but the way it's portrayed, like it was, it turned him mentally. Well, he never he, since he never said anything about it, and we don't have any real primary evidence on what. Uh, on what he was thinking, we can, we're left to assume and guess about a lot of this. And based on, first of all, let me go back. Uh, Ann Collier, who is a, just a, a top drawer researcher, found something that's really interesting. And that is that Urilla's name was actually Aurilla, A-U, and that everybody's gotten it wrong for so long. And she, um, Arilla, Arilla died, Arilla was pregnant and died. We don't know what the cause of death was, whether she died as a result of pregnancy, which was very common at that time, mm-hmm. or whether there was some, she contracted a disease and died. There's no record exactly what happened, just that she died. So we don't know the cause of her death. Uh, but after that, it just seemed that Wyatt Earp just lost his whole mooring. It, it, that his, his life almost fell apart. I mean, he winds up working on the, you know, he was working in one of the most sleazy, disgusting brothels 
in Peoria. He's uh, living as common-law husband to one of the prostitutes, and he takes off into Indian territory and gets caught in this horse-stealing thing, which is so complicated that we may, nobody may have it right. I mean, uh, he was involved in a horse-stealing, but it's just nobody really has enough details to understand it. And then comes the next step, and credit to Gary Roberts for finding it, and then Roy Young for developing it and finding the whole story. Wyatt's in jail, and he comes up, he and some of the other prisoners come up with this elaborate jail escape where they climb up through the roof of the jail, go over, and then dig under the fence. And, I mean, this is like a major jail escape. And Wyatt Earp gets out of the territory, uh, heads for parts unknown, and eventually winds up a deputy marshal in Wichita. When when all of this is going on, and those they, like you said, there's holes, how does a researcher fill in the holes? Because if you fill in the holes and it's wrong, and I'm asking, this is just a mic question. Um, if he fills in the holes wrong, you could be chastised for it. Or is it that you filled in the holes, but it's there's historical reference or there's enough historical information that you can do that? Well, if you don't have the information, you can't write the story. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't, in, in my book, I didn't include the details of the jail break because right. Roy Young filled those in later. Um, you don't, you don't make stuff up. If you're writing nonfiction, you just, you write what you have. And if there's a hole, uh, either leave the hole or you might say, uh, why it's whereabouts for the next year were unknown or something like that. Hmm. I mean, you just, if there's a hole, you have to leave the hole if you're writing nonfiction. It's going to be a weird question. I'm going to ask you because it just kind of came to me. How come, um, Wyatt is so much bigger. Like, he's he's still there. Here we are in 2022. Uh, this weekend that's happening right now is Hell Dorado in uh, Tombstone weekend. I think we're coming up to the 100. Next weekend will be the 140th anniversary of the, uh, the gunfight on Fremont Street. Um, why do you think it is that Virgil stands out above all the, bro- the brothers, especially Virgil? Do you think Virgil gets enough credit? Because Virgil is an amazing man on his own right. Well, um, see, I, I, I don't think that's a very important question because the reason you ask why Wyatt stands up above yeah, all not others. just the Earp brothers, but really every other law officer of the Old West, and the reason is, 30 seconds uh, by on the Fremont Street. 30 seconds on Fremont Street, and what followed after that was Wyatt as the leader of uh, the Vendetta Posse, and the Vendetta Posse, the gunfight and the Vendetta Posse were two things that nobody else really has in their story. I mean, uh, you can look at other remarkable officers. Jim Courtright had a, uh, the incredible gunfight he was in, um, and very many other, you know, there are a lot of really good officers. 
but the what Earp did in Tombstone was like nothing anybody else has done before. So I think that's why he that's why he stands out as being more famous and remaining more famous. Now, detractors would say it's because uh, he got his story told and his book was a big deal, but other people got their stories told. Mm-hmm. And um, it, the gunfight in Tombstone was probably the epitome of Western gunfights. I mean, that is what a real gunfight was in the Old West. And it's the most remembered, the most legendary. And then the vendetta is something, I mean, that's... Can you imagine? Here's... A law officer who basically says, you know, forget about legal procedure. I'm going to go out and enforce justice rather than enforce the law. And he went out and eradicated several major outlaws. I mean, that's uh, that's a pretty memorable, uh, something pretty memorable. And you ask why Virgil isn't remembered in the same way and it's because Wyatt Earp led the posse and and if you read a lot of the people who knew them they all say that Wyatt Earp was the leader of the Earps that even though Virgil was older Wyatt Earp was the leader of the Earp family so fair enough fair enough so as you're moving forward in, in the history of Wyatt Earp do you think that everything that's been uncovered, that there's any more left? Or do you think there's still more out there that we don't know? Because you have your book. We have well, David more, Haas, I know, there's, I know there's more out there that, that most people don't know because Gary and I just found something that is pretty amazing and we haven't had time to write up. Um, yeah, there, there's more out there that we do that people don't know. And there's, who knows what could come Mm -hmm. from here on. I mean, it's, I'll tell you, Mike, I think the last 20 years, after my book came out, the last 20 years have been so rewarding because just a whole bunch of just really good researchers have come up with things that help fill in the story, uh, provide greater understanding. You mentioned Peter Brand and the work he's done is just phenomenal. I mean, it's just beyond good. Um, one of the ones that I found, uh, you know, I, I, if you look in the anthology, there's a story I did for Wild West on um, what are the the ten biggest finds on Wyatt Earp, basically since my book came out, and that turned out kind of being what the anthology is all about, and um, all the work that Roger J did. Of so many other people, one of my favorites, and this this may seem a little silly, um, Ann Collier found out uh, found a whole bunch of stuff about Hattie Ketchum, who was Jim Earp's stepdaughter, and uh, it's um, what he found out. What what Ann found out was just really neat because it put to end a whole bunch of false stories that people had thought about how the McLowrys were dating Hattie and uh, that she was the secret cause of the OK Corral gunfight. And this had been stuff that had been around for a hundred years that 
people actually thought that there was a secret uh, cause to the gunfight, and it was Anne who came up with it. Um, you know, I mentioned that I cut a third of my book. Uh, one of the things that I cut was a big section I had on Hattie Ketchum, and it turned out that Anne's, what Anne found was just so good that it changed the whole um, the whole concept of what was going on in Tombstone. And there have been a bunch of finds like that. I mean, it's just been, it's really exciting. I mean, it's really exciting that stuff comes up. Uh, Peter Brand, look at the latest thing that he did on Ben Sippy, where he found Ben Sippy's secret identity. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, that was just spectacular. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so exciting to read that stuff. It's just, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's just, if you're into history, if you're into the subject, it's just like constant thrills. I mean, it's just so much need is going on. It's so exciting. Well, we we did do a podcast. We've done all three, or we did, excuse me, we did three parts to the vendetta with Peter. And, um, you know, he had it way harder as a researcher because he's in Australia. And, you know, popping back and forth between the States and Australia, that's not a you know, jump in the car and drive over there thing. You know, he really, he did a phenomenal job and, and uh, we broke down the Vendetta ride. Is there, is there a part two to your book that you think you might do one day? Or is there something, or is there something that um, you're working on that, don't laugh, because it's a, I'd like to see a part two to this book that I'm touching here. Um, is there something out there that you're working on now that will be as mind-blowing as Wyatt Earp, The Life Behind the Legend? Sitting in my computer right now is uh, a book that I did on Earp and Earp researchers. And I told, sold it to a publisher four years ago. And uh, after holding it for a year, they... <clears throat> Uh, decided that it was too controversial and they were afraid of getting sued and they dropped the book okay. and I have not been able to I have not been able to find a publisher fair enough do you have a few minutes to talk about anthology sure so at some point I'm going to have Roy be young um, and I met Roy last year at TTR um, and for folks that don't know that's a history event in Tombstone that happens once a year, and I met Roy, and and I got Anthology, and Anthology sits next to your book and Gary's book as, you know, reference material. It's just every time I have a question, I go to one of those three. How did Anthology come about? How did it come about that three people, because I think Bo Snecker was involved, John, you, and Roy, came together to put together, I consider, the Bible of Wyatt Earp. Well, it was actually Gary Roberts was the other, was or Gary in it Roberts. too. John wrote the foreword, John Bozenecker wrote the foreword, Gary, Roy, and I did the anthology. <clears throat> and um, what happened for me, I wrote that article on the uh, the most important Wyatt Earp finds. Uh, Greg Lallier at Wild West came up with the idea. And he said, uh, uh, how about if you write an article on the uh, the most important Wyatt Earp finds, a subjective article on the most important Wyatt Earp finds 
since your book came out. And I thought, man, I need somebody to help me with that. So I, I got Bob Cash, my friend Bob Cash, who lives in Texas, and said, I need your help on this. And so we, Bob and I sorted through what we considered the most important, the, the best dirt finds since, um, since my book came out. And it was really hard because there were an awful lot of them. Um, you know, this, and we left out some stuff that was really important. Uh, but anyway, we came up with our list. And right after the magazine article came out, Roy called me and said um, that he'd been talking to University of North Texas Press about an anthology that would be basically exactly what I'm doing. And he said exactly what the article was. And he said, would you be interested in helping me? I was kind of like, well, gee, Roy, that's a big commitment. And he said, well, let's get Gary Roberts, too. And I said, yeah, maybe the three of us could do it. And so Roy called Gary. Gary and I talked about it. And we figured out how much time it would take. You know, we thought it would probably take maybe 10 months' work if, if we did it all. And so we started going into it and started getting onto it. It was two years of full-time work to put it together because we all wrote so much for it. You know, there's the anthology is full of pretty, a lot of new stuff, uh, that Gary Roy and I did. And there's a a lot of new articles as well as the, the collection of other articles. And Gary and I did the timeline and my God, the timeline took us months. I mean, it was so much work where we have all of a sudden we've got this, most complete timeline in Wyatt Earp history, and it's just beyond belief how much how much there is and how much work it took. And then we sifted through, I think we read every article we could find on Wyatt Earp and uh, Wyatt Earp Tombstone and everything else, and we went through so much stuff, and we tried to sort, and the editor kept telling us, don't worry, there'll be plenty of room, don't worry, there'll be plenty of room. We submit it, and then we have to cut about a third of it, and we all of a sudden we're leaving out these great articles that we really wanted in, and um, so it was it was a lot of work. I mean, it was just it was a, uh, as I say, we thought maybe ten months, and it was two years of forty, fifty, sixty hours a week work for all three of us. By the end of it, Gary was in the hospital. Roy's eyes had stopped working. He had to go to the eye doctor and he had to stop reading stuff. And I was the only one who emerged from it healthy. It was, it was just a, an incredible workload. I, I think we were all really surprised. We never expected that much work. We were two years late on deadline. Anyway. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it is, it's like a Bible. I mean, you read it. I made the mistake of reading it like a book. And I read it from front to back. And then I think I mentioned to somebody how I read it. And they're like, no, you're supposed to like pull pieces out of it. Like pull out when you find something, pull out of it like an encyclopedia. But the problem was, is it was, it was so good. What was the decision behind all the people that are in it? Because there's so many people that besides just the, the four of you and the three main people, you, Gary and Roy, but how did you pick all the individual writers and, and researchers to place inside the book? Well, as I say, I think 
I think the three of us went through and we sorted out, we tried to find every Wyatt Earp article that we could in periodicals. And we, you know, we left stuff out. There's stuff, there are other people that I wish we could have included. There's, and there, we even left out some really good articles. Um, we tried to include what we thought were the most illuminating articles on Earth, the landmark articles that uh, really tell the, the most important new discoveries of the last 25 years. And we also included um, a couple of, that were older than that because we needed to give a more complete picture on things, like the article... Uh, the absolutely incredible article on Stuart Lake that was an older article um, and a few other things. But we were trying to give kind of a full picture with emphasis, with great emphasis on discoveries. In fact, in a way, I think the three of us saw this as part two of my book, uh, that it was... Uh, the new stuff that's come out since Life Behind the Legend and the, that adds to the story. And, you know, some of it, as I say, you know, the stuff on Peoria that Roger J. did is amazing. Roy's article on the jail escape is just a major article. Another article Roy did that I think is really important to the whole Tombstone story is the article on the Henslet brothers. That's like a big, huge deal in understanding what happened there because the murder of the Hazlitt brothers showed the Cowboys writing as an organized mob, an organized vengeance mob to go after people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely important. So um, how did we decide? We went through everything we could find and, um, uh, tried to pick what we thought was the most important material that the next generation of ERP researchers can look at and say, this is the basis for further research. And as I say, it killed us, and it really killed me that several articles were left out that uh, that we all really wanted in. Well, we're at 50 minutes already. Goes by Already? Fast. Yeah. Is there something that you want to uh, let folks know about? Is there a, something you want to plug? Something that you've got out there that you want folks to know about? Besides your uh, your book, Wyatt Earp, The Life Behind the Legend, you can find it at bookstores everywhere, booksellers, uh, Amazon, wherever you buy your books, you can find it. Um, but is there something that you want to plug? No, I don't think I've got anything to plug right now. I hope I do in the future. Is there a place got, where people can find you? Um, like, not an email or a phone number, but, like, are you writing still in San Francisco? Uh, no, I've, I've moved from San Francisco to Santa Cruz, which is just down the coast. Right. But uh, it's, uh, I, I, because of COVID, I, you know, I used to do a lot of events. I, used, right. I did events at the Autry and uh, various other places, but... Uh, because of COVID, I haven't really been doing much the last year and a half, as I don't think anybody else has either. So well, need to come to Arizona because we're open and ready for you. Uh, yeah, it's, that's a lot different from California. We're 
we're pretty much closed. Right. Uh, well, one thing, if I could say, if yeah. you want me to talk, Please. Um, I get a lot of questions about John Ringo. And the important thing to realize, people ask, could Wyatt Earp have returned to kill John Ringo? And the important part of the issue is, Wyatt Earp never told a story about having returned to kill Ringo. If he had returned to kill Ringo, it would be the most compelling story of his lifetime, and he never told it. Uh, it's almost impossible that he could have returned to kill Ringo. And trying to keep that, keeping that secret when people were writing his biography just seems unrealistic. So if, um, if people are, are dealing yeah. with Lyder killing Ringo and they still want to hold on to the romantic story, it's, it's pretty much impossible. Will you come back and do a part two about that? Yeah, I can. Awesome. You guys heard it. We got him on record. That's all I care about is that we got him on record. So we'll have him back. Um, again, if you need to get uh, his book, you can find uh, KCT for Tiller's book, White Earp, The Life Behind the Legend, is everywhere. I know you guys have seen it. And if you've, you folks haven't seen it, it's a must-have and it's a must-read. And I think I've read it twice. And, um, and I'll probably read it again because there's just so much there. I also want to thank Mark Boardman. He is a big part of the podcast, and you can find Mark Boardman as the editor of the Tombstone Epitaph, and I urge you guys to really subscribe to the Epitaph. It's so much fun to own a piece of Tombstone history, and every time you get it, it's a true newspaper, and it's, you know, it's just fun to have that paper there, and you're, it's, uh, uh, it comes from Tombstone. The mailing address is from Tombstone, and be a part of Tombstone history. Uh, and you can do so at Tombstone Epitaph, E-P-T, uh, yeah, E-P-I-T-A-P-H dot com, tombstoneepitaph.com. And of course, I want to thank everybody. Oh my gosh, there's so many people from Roy and Pam Potter and the folks over at um, the Wild West History Association. They have been helping me uh, with the podcast and other content that I'm getting out. And you can join them like I am a member. Casey's a member, and you can join uh, by going to www.wildwesthistory.org. And again, the journals, the journals are insane. I read them. They're over a quarter inch thick. Uh, it's just solid history, no, no crazy advertising or anything, just some great stuff. And you can get a membership for one year for 75 Two for one twenty-five or three for one seventy-five. I I really get the the one seventy-five because you're going to save a lot of money, and that journal will just show up. And oh my god, it's like Christmas every quarter. It's Christmas, and again, that is at wildwesthistory.org. Of course, I tell everybody the same thing. There's so much craziness going on in the world, so please reach out to a neighbor, reach out to a loved one who needs some help. Give them a hug, take them to dinner, buy them some groceries, fill up their car for gas. Just a little bit could totally make somebody's day. And uh, my charity is the uh, St. Mary's Food Bank here in Phoenix. Donate to a food bank near you. In my case, the St. Mary's Food Bank, a dollar by uh, makes seven meals and feeds seven families um, or seven people or creates uh, seven meals to feed a family for one dollar. So, you know, 50 bucks is, is kind of nothing really. 
to donate, and that's 350 meals. So find a food bank near you and donate. They just, they really, really need your help, especially with everything going on in the world. So hug, hug a neighbor, you know, tell them that you love them, do some stuff for a family member that's looking for some help, and donate to a charity near you. Of course, Casey, thank you so much. We'll have you again back for part two. And uh, uh, thanks again, everybody. Appreciate you coming along, and we'll see you next time.